0: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Uh,
1: this is the, the, very, the very easy part. I just get to say why he's brilliant. Um, uh, good afternoon and welcome to Hay. We are very lucky to be um, in partnership with the University of Cambridge, having here with us today a world expert in. Um, mental health and neuroscience. He's been the professor of psychiatry at the University of Cambridge for 20 years and he, after beginning his medical training at the University of Oxford and then at St Bartholomew's Hospital in London, he uh, did more training in London and in Hong Kong and then he has been working in an academic industrial partnership with GlaxoSmithKline, developing anti-inflammatory drugs for depression. He is the now head of department at, um, for the Dep- Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, and he's director of the Wolfson uh, Brain Imaging Centre, which is at the Department of Clinical Neurosciences. Um, at the end of this um, talk, there's going to be a collection for the charity Sense, who are a national charity that supports uh, and campaign for children and adults who are deaf, blind, or have another sort of sensory impairment, and we hope that you will all... Um, support this cause generously and after that um, he will be signing copies of this beautiful and brilliant book in the bookshop um, so we will see you there and um, without further ado please give a warm hey welcome to sir professor sir ed Bullmore.
0: Uh, Well, good afternoon, and uh, I've never been to Hay before. Uh, I'm enjoying it tremendously so far, and I'm delighted to see so many people have uh, chosen to come to this event. Um, I'm going to be talking uh, about this book, The Inflamed Mind. Um, If you've already bought it and read it, then thank you very much. If you haven't, then I'm going to risk spoiling the plot, destroying the suspense. I'm going to tell you what the last few sentences of the book are right at the start. Okay, so this is how the book ends. We could be on the cusp of a revolution. It won't be televised. And I might be wrong, but I think it has already begun. So that's where the the story ends. And some of that might not make a lot of sense right now. The the one bit of that that I would suggest you hang on to is I might be wrong, Okay. (laughs) Some of what I'm going to say, I think, is solid, certain. Some of it is going to be a bit more speculative. But the reason I wrote the book is because I think the science is at an inflection point. Uh, And that's uh, what excited me about it and made me want to write it. So, um, I should say also, uh, Isaac's made the point, but just to be completely crystal clear about my... You know, where I'm coming from professionally, I work in the University of Cambridge. I also work half-time for GlaxoSmithKline, which is a pharmaceutical company. And I also work for Cambridgeshire and Peterborough NHS Foundation Trust, which is, of course, part of the NHS and I have a number of sources of research support, and of course I have a commercial interest in the book I'm talking about. So the book begins with uh, a story uh, about a patient I met uh, around about 1990. So I was then 30. I'd been qualified as a doctor for five years. I'd done a bit of training as a physician. I knew a little bit about uh, internal medicine. And I'd uh, just started at the Maudsley Hospital, where I was going to specialise in training as a psychiatrist. Maudsley Hospital, as you can see, is an imposing edifice, uh, was then, and uh, to some extent still is, the kind of crucible of British psychiatry. And I was quite pleased with myself to have arrived there as a young psychiatrist in training. And I was sitting in the outpatient clinic, not long after I'd started, uh, and a man walked in. I'll call him Mr Q a little bit older than me, and we started talking. He said, um, you know, I'm feeling gloomy about the future. Um, I'm not sleeping well. Um, I keep thinking about bad things that have happened in the past. I'm not getting as much pleasure out of life as I used to. Um, And so on. And uh, after about five or six minutes of that, I sort of sagely, um, uh, you know, pondered what he told me, and I said, I think you might be depressed. Um, and he was extremely unimpressed. He said, I know I'm depressed, that's why I'm here. <laughs> the question is, what are you going to do about it? And so I, you know, I was full of this new textbook knowledge I'd just been learning. and I sort of started telling him about well, you could have psychotherapy or, on the other hand, you could have drug treatment. Uh, in, my, in your case, I said, I think I'd particularly recommend the drug treatment, the SS, SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And I started going on about how, you know, we thought that a lot of people with depression, that there was a transmitter imbalance. You know, the molecules were a bit out of whack in the brain. Uh, particularly serotonin levels might be low and we could give SSRI drugs, boost them, and people would get better as a result. Uh, and he said, um, how do you know that about me? And we sort of instantaneously locked eyes and I think both realised that I had no answer to that question. I had no... In fact, I had no idea how to find an answer to that question. I couldn't tell him that his serotonin levels were low. I hadn't done any test to demonstrate that. There was no test available to do that. And yet I was offering him a drug that I motivated, rationalized, uh, on the basis that it would improve these low levels of serotonin that I hadn't actually measured. Um, So we looked into the abyss together, the abyss of my ignorance. Uh, And then uh, we politely carried on. And I wrote him a prescription for SSRIs, and and he left me. Uh, And he left me feeling like a fraud. He left me feeling like, you know, one of Moliere's 18th century physicians, one of those uh, quacks who would prescribe bleeding for their patients on the grounds of superfluous sanguinity without really knowing that the patients had more blood in their circulation than they needed. And that anecdote has stayed with me for quite a long time as you can tell. Now, if we jump forward to where we are in 2018, the, the treatments available for depression have really not shifted very far from what I was talking about back in 1990. And I'm not hostile to drug treatment. This, the, the message of this book is not that antidepressants are wrong or will never work. I think the evidence that we now have uh, from a number of different... Uh, Studies is pretty compelling. This is a paper published earlier this year. It's a meta-analysis, so it combines uh, individual patient data from tens of thousands of patients. And what you can see here, it may be a little bit difficult to read the words, but uh, actually I wonder, is there a laser pointer somewhere that uh, I might be able to use? Um, You can see that each of these drugs, uh, amitriptyline, uh, duloxetine, and so on, each of them is an antidepressant. The, uh, uh, this little blue marker indicates to what extent, on average, patients given that drug do better than if they're given a sugar pill or a placebo. And all of the blue uh, markers to the right are indicating that, on average, the drugs are more effective than no treatment. And you can see that, on average, they all work moderately well. But there are still a lot of buts. We don't know as I didn't know when I was talking to Mr Q, that the serotonin levels in the brain are at a lower ebb in patients offered treatment uh, with serotonin-boosting drugs. We still don't have that test available to us. We don't know which patients are most likely to respond well to uh, antidepressant drugs versus, for example, the course of psychotherapy. There's been very little therapeutic progress in the last 30 years. One way of gauging that is you can see that all of those drugs, all of those blue boxes, and the little lines coming out of them are more or less overlapping. They're all working about equally well. If there was clear therapeutic progress in the field, the drug at the top would be the most recent one. But actually, the drug at the top and is one of the oldest ones. So the newer drugs are not working clearly better than the old drugs. Uh, and industry, which has driven a lot of the uh, treatment development, obviously, in, uh, in depression historically, is no longer interested in depression or indeed much of the rest of psychiatry, much of the rest of neuroscience, but particularly depression industry has pulled out uh, since 2010 particularly there's been a, a withdrawal of investment and yet depression uh, is incredibly common i mean it's about twenty five percent lifetime risk of depression that is to say one in four of us uh, will have uh, an episode of depression at some point in our lives i like to think that as uh, Every planet, sorry, every family on the planet uh, will be touched by depression. I think it's that common. Uh, The World Health Organization predicts that it will be the biggest single cause of disability by 2020, and yet we haven't moved therapeutically, and industry is not plowing in uh, the investment funds that would be needed to support a real shift in treatment. Now, this all came home to me (coughs) quite uh, directly around about 2010, uh, at which time I'd been working half-time for GSK for about five years. And that's when GSK announced that they were going to close completely their Psychiatry Development Unit. And I talked to my boss and I said, "Um, does that mean uh, GSK, the industry generally, is never going to go looking for better treatments for depression again? And he said, well, I'd never say never, but if we were going to do, Uh, serious work in depression, it would have to be completely different. We're not going to do the same thing all over again that we've uh, been doing for the last 10, 15 years because it simply wasn't working in terms of finding new treatments. And that really prompted me to think differently, really radically differently, about how could you possibly um, get leverage? How could you do something therapeutically that would make a difference to depression? that was different enough from the old way of doing things. And the answer I came to was a surprising one. Maybe we should be thinking about treating depression not only as a brain or a mind disorder, maybe we should be thinking also of the potential influence of the immune system. In particular, maybe we should be thinking about how inflammation of the body and the brain could drive mental symptoms of depression. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the immune system or inflammation. Um, I knew a little bit about it because, as I told you, I trained as a physician before I specialised in psychiatry, so I had some knowledge of clinical immunology. But when I looked again at where the field was in 2010, 2011, I was amazed uh, at how rapidly immunology had progressed and how uh, immense its therapeutic impact had already been. I was quite excited by it. But I had to relearn a lot of the basic principles. And I want to just share some of the core features of the immune system and inflammation with you now. Inflammation is was originally described, actually, by the Romans uh, as the body's response to trauma or infection. And I put it up in this schematic. You can see the kind of cavemen in the top left having a fight. One of them is going to be wounded in the hand. And you can, in the center panel, see the blade of the, the spear penetrating the skin. The blade is covered with those little sort of bobbly uh, things. They're bacteria or germs. So that's an infection in the underlying tissue beneath the skin. And the inflammatory response begins with these cells. Uh, they're shown as little sort of munchy, Robocop-type little icons here. They're called macrophages which is Greek for big eaters. Okay, They eat things, and they eat a lot of things, and particularly they eat bacteria. So the first thing that happens when you get infectious trauma like this, the immediate response, macrophages rally round and start chomping the bacteria. And they also start spitting out inflammatory hormones called cytokines. Those shown as those little triangles with an exclamation mark. And these are alarm signals that tell the rest of the immune system something's gone wrong in this guy's hand, Uh, we're we're encountering a lot of bacteria, and we need reinforcements. And that, uh, at a cellular level, at a molecular level, is what drives the uh, inflammatory changes that you can see just by looking at the hand. It becomes red, it becomes swollen, it becomes tender. All of that is the kind of clinical manifestation of, of this inflammatory process. So that's what inflammation is originally. But when you think now about what the immune system is and how we know uh, the immune system to be configured, it is an extremely complex uh, and distributed thing. I would say it's at least as complex in its organization as the nervous system. And we often tell ourselves, I think a little bit narcissistically, to be honest, that the human brain is the most complex entity in the universe. The the human immune system is, as, as far as I can see, not very much less complex than that. But if you say to people, where is the immune system, it's not as simple as saying, where's the nervous system? If I, if I want to know where the nervous system is, 99% of it is in here. But where's the immune system? Is it here? Is it there? Is it in my hip? In fact, it's everywhere. And it has to be everywhere because the body can be attacked uh, by threats. Bacteria, other germs, can come from anywhere. So we have uh, a number of... These sort are of particular organs. We have the, the spleen, the bone marrow, the lymph nodes. I think of these as the command and control centers of, of the immune system. And they sit, as it were, in the center of the self, in that, in that middle panel. Uh, and they receive the signals from the macrophages in the periphery, in the, in the different organs of the body the gut, the teeth, the brain. Uh, when the macrophages are under attack, they send those signals to the command and control centers, the lymph nodes and the spleen, and other immune cells. Uh, cleverly respond the information they're getting from the macrophages to reinforce the body's defense against the attacker. So it's a complicated, uh, distributed, you might even say intelligent system that we're talking about. Now, how does that relate to uh, depression? Well, um, it's actually very obvious. In fact, in the book, I say it's hiding in plain sight. Uh, There is a very clear association between inflammatory disease of the body and increased risk of depression. I could give you a lot of epidemiological statistics to support that, but I'm gonna tell you another story. And this is another patient that I met, it was probably about a year before Mr. Q. So this was while I was still training as a physician. And she was a woman, Uh, she came to a medical clinic. I saw her wearing a white coat with a stethoscope. I wasn't a psychiatrist at the time. And we talked about her symptoms. She had painful joints. She had a number of other uh, physical symptoms in her body. And then I started talking to her about how she was feeling, her mental state. And just like Mr. Q had done, or was to do uh, a year or so later, she rattled off uh, quite quickly a long list of symptoms of depression. And I was curiously pleased with myself. I thought, "I've, I've really sort of made a little discovery here. This lady came to the clinic. Uh, with a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, I have uh, identified that she also has a diagnosis of depression. Um, And I rushed off to tell the consultant in charge of the clinic of my great discovery, and he said, and she's depressed? Well, you would be, wouldn't you? (laughs) Again, very unimpressed by my diagnostic (laughs) acumen. And we dropped it. But I keep coming back to that, because under that little question, well, you would be, wouldn't you, there lurks a lot of assumptions about how mind and body relate. What he was really saying was her depression has got nothing to do with the arthritis, per se. It's nothing to do with her medical problem directly. It's just that she's thinking about the adverse implications of having a diagnosis of arthritis. Maybe she's imagining the years ahead uh, of increasing disability. And it's that conscious uh, psychological reflection on her physical state that's causing the depressed mental state. It's not that the two are directly linked. He didn't say all that. I've just unpacked all that. From what he did say was, well, you would be, wouldn't you? And the implication was that she left the clinic pretty much exactly as she'd arrived. We didn't regard it as her problem. We didn't regard it as our problem to fix that aspect uh, of her uh, disease. Now, you know, I'm not telling this story because at the time I was right and he was wrong. We were both equally uh, convinced of that explanation. And to, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, justify our, our dismissal of her uh, depressive symptoms, I would point to the fact that at the time what we thought we knew about the immune system and how the immune system relates to the brain and the mind really didn't allow any alternative explanation. And on this schematic, what I'm trying to show very high level is what we thought we knew about depression, what I uh, was taught about depression uh, and the relationship between the brain and the body when I was at medical school and shortly thereafter. So in the 1980s, what we were taught was there was something like a spectrum, a mood spectrum, and you could be depressed, you could have lost your capacity for pleasure, so-called anhedonia, tired, pessimistic, withdrawn, Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, more upbeat, uh, normal capacity for pleasure, energy, optimism, sociability, and so on. Everybody was on that spectrum, and what pushed the needle from one end of the spectrum to the other was, first of all, uh, particular bits of the brain that uh, we know are important for emotional processing. Uh, The amygdala is one, the cingulate is another. And at a microscopic level, below the sort of the high high level uh, description that you can see in a brain scan, we assumed that there was this underlying abnormality in neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin. That's what we were taught. That's what I tried to convince Mr. Q. Uh, justified the use of an SSRI. And you can see right at the bottom, uh, there's something very concrete that separates all that brain apparatus and the mental symptoms from the body. Because the little cytokines, and immune cells, and macrophages circulating in the blood, uh, joining in a way the, the brain to the rest of the body, they couldn't get across the blood-brain barrier and influence the workings of the brain. We were taught there was something like a Berlin Wall. Uh, It was called the blood-brain barrier, and it was uh, taught to us um, very dogmatically, as if it was strictly impermeable. So the immune system really couldn't get into the brain. It couldn't influence the brain. So Mrs P's symptoms of depression simply could not be related to the inflammation that was circulating in her body and causing her joints uh, to be painful. That was the Berlin Wall uh, in the 1980s. But, of course, since then, the Berlin Wall has changed. Uh, and so, too, has our concept of the blood-brain barrier. And what we thought was an impermeable uh, separation, a uh, border between body, brain and mind, turns out not at all to be impermeable. In fact, there's communication going on all the time between the peripheral immune system and the central nervous system. Uh, I've shown it here, you can see these those sort of bricks in the wall of the old-school blood-brain barrier, now separated quite widely, wide enough to allow those immune cells and cytokines to kind of percolate out of the uh, the body, get into the brain. And when they get into the brain, one of the things they do is they activate the brain's own macrophages. The brain has little macrophages sitting in there, waiting for a signal. They're called microglia. The terminology is a little bit confusing, but Microglia are basically just the same kind of uh, big-eating, rapid rebuttal cells that we call macrophages in the rest of the body. When they get a signal through the blood-brain barrier to say there's inflammation going on elsewhere, they get active, they chuck out more inflammatory cytokines, uh, and those can change the way that neurons work. They make neurons more likely to die. They make neurons less likely to uh, form new synaptic connections. Uh, And those... Changes in how uh, neurons work are reflected in changes at the, at the higher level of the single little amygdala, and that could tilt the dial from the depressed, so it's from the upbeat to the more depressed end of the symptom spectrum. That's the new idea. That is, in a sense, the guts of what's in the book, scientifically, that when we allow the blood brain barrier to be permeable, we can allow ourselves to make a completely different Interpretation of Mrs. P's symptoms. They're not just a psychological reflection of her physical state. They may be directly caused by the same inflammatory process that's causing her joint disease. So that is where we could be. Now, when I started talking about these ideas to colleagues uh, four or five years ago um, and saying, well, oh, you know. It's so obvious, everybody with an inflammatory disease or all inflammatory diseases are associated with significantly increased risks of depression. Um, This must be giving us a big clue. People would say, and this is a good question and a fair question, okay, association is one thing, correlation is interesting, but we have to be clear about whether there's a causal effect. Is inflammation actually driving, causing depression? because if not, then it's of no interest therapeutically. We don't want to be meddling with something that isn't directly causing the symptoms we're trying to improve. So how do we get at that crucial question of causality? Well, uh, in humans, uh, one way of doing that is to look at how events unfold over time. We know that it causes, precedes, effect. So if inflammation caused depression, we'd expect there to be examples that we could find where inflammation had preceded depression. And this piece of data, it's a pretty stark, simple piece of data, but I find it quite um, impressive, is one example of that causal precedence. So these are data from tens of thousands of uh, young people who were studied first at the age of eight... Sorry, nine. They were studied first at the age of nine. They were not depressed at the age of nine, but their blood levels of inflammatory cytokines were variable. And you can see the variability, bottom, middle, top. There were sort of three divisions of inflammatory cytokines or hormones in circulation. And those kids at the age of nine were then followed up for another eight years and then reassessed in terms of depression. And it turned out that if you were a little bit more inflamed than your peers at the age of nine, your risk of being depressed at the age of 18 was significantly increased, nearly doubled. Um, That is, I would say, that satisfies the kind of necessary condition for a a causal relationship uh, between inflammation and depression. Nine years, you're inflamed. Nine years later, at the age of 18, you're depressed. That is compatible with the idea that the early inflammation causes the later depression. It's not by itself entirely sufficient I think, to clinch a causal explanation, but it's consistent with that idea. And incidentally, it also uh, provides one piece of evidence in support of what I think is a very interesting idea I'll come back to later, which is that childhood uh, risks, uh, childhood challenges, childhood traumas, may be carried in the body, may be memorised by the body in terms of an altered inflammatory response. But how can we break down the causal question a bit more uh, in a bit more of a fine-grained way? Because, again, when I'm talking to sceptical biologists, mainstream physicians, they want to know how does this happen? How is this working step by step, mechanistically? Not just that you know, inflamed nine-year-old becomes a depressed 18-year-old with some kind of nebulous thing going on in between, but exactly how does this work? Uh, And there have been some interesting studies that have have tried to explore that. Um, We've known since Charles Darwin that animals, including humans, tend to express emotions in rather stereotype ways. It's very easy, regardless of race, nationality, age, for each of us to tell quite quickly whether somebody else is sad, happy uh, or angry, simply by looking at their facial expressions. These are highly conserved uh, characteristics. And in uh, imaging experiments, we can show people different emotional expressions in the scanner and we can measure the responses of the brain. And if we, we know that if you show people sad faces, you get this little focus of activation, functional activation of the brain in the cingulate cortex. Remember, that's one of the areas I mentioned earlier that's important in emotional processing in the brain. So we, know, we knew that already. And then to get at the question of causality, the investigators hit an interesting thing. They took about 20 healthy volunteers and they uh, gave them either a vaccination, a typhoid vaccination, or a placebo. And I don't know if you've had typhoid vaccinations. I had a typhoid vaccination about two years ago. I went to the clinic to have it. Uh, The nurse said, you'll feel off-color for a few days after this. I said, why? She said, it's just the body's way of getting over things. No real explanation. But she was correct. I did feel off-color a couple of days. And in fact, experimentally, we can use vaccination as a kind of low-grade inflammatory stimulus. When, you, when you're vaccinated against a bacteria or a virus, your body is deliberately infected with a germ. You are deliberately exciting an inflammatory response. And if you do that experimentally, and you compare the uh, response <coughs> of uh, participants, uh, both in terms of their, their mental state and their brain state, following vaccination, you get this result. Uh, it's, an, it's a pretty clear-cut correlation. The people who have the greater depressive response to the vaccination on their on the horizontal axis tend to show the greater functional change in that area of the brain, the cingulate that's important for emotional processing. So you can, I hope, begin to see how we're getting closer to a causal step-by-step uh, explanation. A vac- in this case, a vaccination causes uh, an inflammatory response to the body. That in turn changes how brain, the brain functions, particularly in these emotional processing regions and that in turn uh, could cause the depressive symptoms. Now, there's much more I could say about that mechanistic uh, explanatory uh, purpose um, that we, we need to continue to pursue because it's a very fundamental question there's a bit more detail about it in the book. But let's just assume for a moment that you buy everything I've said so far. So you agree that there's a very common association between inflammation and depression. You agree that it could be causal, that inflammation could cause depression. One of the next questions you might have is, well, where does that inflammation come from in the first place? What is it that makes people inflamed so that they then become depressed? Now, there are many uh, bodily diseases. I've already mentioned arthritis, but, you know, psoriasis. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, the list actually is almost as long as the list of diseases known to medicine. All of them have some degree of uh, inflammatory involvement, and in many of them uh, depression has increased. So that's one possible source of inflammation. You could have a physical disease. Uh, you might know you've got a physical disease or you might be somebody who uh, doesn't yet know that they've got a physical disease. But that could be driving the inflammation that is is making you depressed. And then there are some other more ordinary causes, if you will, non-pathological causes. Obesity is a very powerful driver of inflammation. There are a lot of inflammatory cells in fat tissue. If you've got more uh, fat tissue on board, if you're overweight or obese, you will have more uh, inflammatory proteins in circulation. The gut microbiome. I'm not going to say much about this. But you know it's obviously very topical, the, the gut is full of bacteria. Some of them are potentially disease-causing, pathogenic bacteria. So the lining of the gut is one of the most important front lines in the defence of the body. It's absolutely stuffed full of macrophages that are there to defend the body when the front line of the, the gastrointestinal wall is breached by the, the bacteria in the microbiome. If your microbiome changes, perhaps because your diet changes, you can see how that could elicit an inflammatory response, that could be contributory. Chronic periodontitis, horrible phrase, Um, uh, low-grade inflammation of the gums, another very common cause of inflammation that might not be medically recognized because doctors tend to think that teeth are dentists' business, and dentists don't tend to think about bodily inflammation, they just get on with fixing teeth. Menopause, there's some evidence that women after menopause are more inflamed than before age, as we get older, we tend to become more inflamed. Winter, there's one very beautiful study published showing <clears throat> that in the northern hemisphere, as, as we go into the months of December, January, February, uh, there's a sort of cyclical increase in the levels of inflammatory cytokines in circulation. If you go to the southern hemisphere, it's the other way around. Those, those, those months, December, January, are associated with low levels of inflammation. It's in the, in the, the less Uh, the the periods of less sunlight, that you see an inflammatory uh, peak in in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, I could go on. There's a lot of possible causes for low-grade peripheral inflammation that originate biologically from the body. But there are also uh, a number of social factors that can drive inflammation. And uh, I think this is where the story, to my mind, gets particularly interesting. Because in the field of mental health, generally, there's long been a sort of split between the people that think it's all in the mind and the people that think it's all in the brain or the body. And what I've said so far might make you think that I'm going to claim that ultimately this is all in the body. But think about the effects of social stress. Bereavement, caring for a, a frail elderly relative, Uh, Childhood abuse or trauma. All of these are major social stresses and they are massive risk factors for depression. We know know that's beyond doubt. Social stress precedes depression, causes depression. What we haven't understood until very recently is how social stress might cause depression. And in that context, it's very interesting to me that there's increasing evidence that social stress can drive inflammation. Uh, And that doesn't have to be such severe stress uh, as bereavement. Um, I'm talking to you now, public speaking, standing up in front of you. That's stressful. If you measured my blood cells and cytokines while I was waiting backstage and then again at the end of this talk, you'd find I'd almost certainly spiked in terms of inflammatory response. How do I know that? Well, there's this experiment. Uh, that i 'll show you just to sort of give you a flavor of of, of how people are beginning to think in this way. Uh, I like it because actually this isn 't primarily an experiment about depression as a disease it 's an, it's an experiment about chronic occupational stress, and they they looked at teachers, which is a notor- teaching is a notoriously stressful uh, occupation. They found two groups of, of teachers, uh, what you might call a resilient group who were pretty buoyant about their work and felt they were getting out of it what they put in. And then there was a a more chronically dissatisfied, you could say, burnt-out group of teachers who were beginning to think that they really weren't being rewarded commensurate with the effort that they were putting into their work. These these two groups, the resilient and burnt-out teachers, both had blood levels of cytokines measured at the start of the experiment. You can see the burnt-out teachers uh, had cytokine levels significantly higher than the more resilient teachers. They were more, their bodies were more inflamed um, to begin with. And then the experimenters did something quite um, unpleasant, which is they made all the teachers do what I'm doing now. They made them stand up and talk uh, in front of a, you know, an inquisitive panel, a sceptical-looking panel dressed in white coats. They had to make a short speech and do some mental arithmetic while the, the, the people behind the desk scowled and made sort of discouraging facial expressions. <laughs> and that is very stressful. And you can see it in the blood levels of cytokines. You can see that both the burnt-out teachers and the resilient teachers, the cytokine levels bump up a bit after that acute stress. Uh, and uh, indeed, the, the, the teachers that were more inflamed to begin with show an added increase in inflammation when they're exposed to the additional stress of public speaking in that experiment. So those sort of considerations get us to this kind of diagram. And in the book, I call this an artist's impression because, it, at, to be honest, it is at the moment. This is a high-level scheme of how things might be linked together. Uh, it's consistent with what I've told you. It's consistent with what it's in the literature. It still needs further work to really nail it down. So if you start in the bottom right, you've got those macrophages and cytokines, those immune cells and proteins in circulation, which could be driven by arthritis, could be driven by obesity, could be driven by age, could be driven by gum disease, etc. Those inflammatory signals are going to cause changes in the brain, cause changes in the mind, depression. And depression, of course, uh, can cause stress. If you're depressed, you're more likely to encounter stressful situations, and stress can then... Drive inflammation. So, you can see there could be a vicious cycle uh, that is, uh, again, to say this, a particular interest to me in mental health because this is an, uh, uh, an idea, a model which doesn't say it's all in the mind, it doesn't say it's all in the brain or the body, it says what we need to think about is how our minds detect social stress, how we interact with others, how that changes the way the body works uh, and in turn affects the brain. Uh, and ultimately depressive symptoms. So I've said quite a lot about uh, the causal evidence, the evidence that inflammation causes depression. I've said something about where inflammation might come from, but um, we also really need to think about why inflammation causes depression. Everything I've told you so far, you could file under the category of how. How does inflammation cause depression? But why does it cause depression? And I would say the answer has to come back to Darwin. That means that there has to be some survival advantage, there has to be some sense in which becoming inflamed, sorry, becoming depressed as a result of inflammation improves your chance of survival. But that seems a little bit counterintuitive. How could that be? Because if you look at it in the present day, depression particularly severe depression, is not actually advantageous to survival. It tends to be associated with shorter life expectancy, reduced reproductive success, um, a number of other uh, sort of social demographic outcomes that indicate depression isn't currently improving survival very much. So to, to begin to fashion an explanation that's consistent with Darwin's ideas about natural selection by survival, we have to kind of imagine how this link between inflammation and depression could have been an advantage to survival many hundreds of thousands of years ago. And of course, this all gets very speculative. But the story is out there that when our caveman was injured, when his hand became inflamed, his mood changed, his behaviour changed. He withdrew himself from contact with the rest of the tribe, he reduced the amount of food he was eating, he conserved energy, He remained a little bit anxious because he was uh, disabled and potentially vulnerable to predators. You can make up a story about how the the behaviours that we call depression now, many hundreds of thousands of years ago, could have been adaptive. They could have been a kind of sickness behaviour that uh, protected or encouraged recovery uh, following an infectious trauma that might otherwise have been fatal to the individual or, in the case of a contagious disease, potentially to related family members. That's a story. It's a just-so story. And there are other just-so stories out there about how depression might have evolved. But if that story was true, then you would expect that the genes for depression might be related to the immune system. And until very recently, I mean, literally six months ago, um, we didn't know what the genes for depression were. And we still don't know completely what the genes for depression are, but this uh, bit of data on the right, is a so-called Manhattan plot, it's showing where over the length of the human genome, we've got particular genes that are linked to the risk for depression. You can see there's some uh, particularly peaky points in the genome. Those are genes where the risk for depression uh, is significant, and many of those genes have immune functions. Now, I don't say that proves the evolutionary theory But nor does it refute the evolutionary theory, it is consistent and and allows us to continue thinking that that might help us answer the question why. So the final question I want to come to is, um, for many people I suspect the most important one, which is so what? You know, Okay, inflammation could somehow cause depression and there might be an evolutionary or genetic explanation why. But what what difference is that actually going to make to treatment? Which, of course, is the question I started with. Well, if you follow what I've said so far, inflammation causes depression, it's natural, it's intuitive, that anti-inflammatory drugs or anti-inflammatory treatments of another kind might work as antidepressants. And I would say that that is probably true, or maybe true, but not yet known for sure. And I don't think it will ever be true for everyone. Because... I think one idea about depression that we probably have to leave behind us is that it's all one thing. That all of these people, the one in four of the global population that have the depression are depressed for the same reason. I don't think it's plausible. And if you look at the data that we have linking inflammation to depression more, more, uh, in more greater detail, it isn't the case that everybody with depression has these increased levels of cytokines or immune cells. It's about a third of, of patients as far as we can see at the moment. So what I think might happen in terms of treatment is that when somebody like Mr. Q comes into an outpatient clinic, instead of being told, oh, you've probably got low serotonin levels so we're going to give you an SSRI, there'll be a blood test. We'll measure a biomarker. We'll be able to look at what's happening in that person's immune system. And if there's evidence that there's inflammation as well as depression, then that would lead us to a different kind of treatment. We might offer some specialist treatment to reduce inflammation uh, as a way of getting at the depression. If the blood test result is different, if there's no evidence of inflammation, well, we wouldn't offer that treatment option. You might offer one of the many other treatment options that are known to be successful in depression. That might like to seem like kind of motherhood and apple pie. I mean, if you went to your GP and said you were drinking a lot and you were producing a lot of urine, He wouldn't start uh, prescribing insulin for diabetes before he'd done a blood test to show that you had increased levels of glucose. So in many other areas of medicine, this kind of logic is bread and butter. But for psychiatry, it would actually be a revolution to measure something in the blood, in this case a marker of the immune uh, system, that you could use to predict response to treatment and make sure that the treatments you were offering to people were the treatments that they were most likely to respond to. Another thing I want to say about treatment is I'm talking about drugs, but I don't think this is just about drugs or just about pharmaceuticals. If you think about how you might modify the uh, body's immune response, there are in fact a number of other different ways that you could go about it. Uh, You know, historically we've focused on these synapses that we can barely see, these serotonergic uh, neurons in the brain. But we also know that the vagus nerve, that you can see kind of snaking out of the brain at the bottom, gets into every part of the immune system and dials down the amount of inflammation in the body. So if you stimulate your vagus nerve, and actually you can do this simply by rubbing your oracle. Uh, I don't know how many of you know what, where your oracle is, but it's, it's just above your ear canal. There's a little sort of cartilaginous ridge there. If you rub that, you are stimulating the vagus because that's the one place on the body where the vagus uh, provides sensation to the skin. So you, you, you rub that, you are stimulating the vagus. And there are other ways of stimulating the vagus which reduce inflammation very significantly. In fact, some of these methods have already been licensed for depression in the States. You can uh, have a vagal nerve stimulator implanted, an electrical device that stimulates the vagus a bit more effectively than simply rubbing your oracle. And the final thing I'd say about treatment is I don't think the immune system is restricted to depression. Uh, And I'm not going to have time to go into this in great detail, but this is uh, the first patient with Alzheimer's disease. Um, A woman studied by Dr. Alzheimer, who developed dementia in her 50s, he looked at her brain after she died under the microscope and realised there were sort of lumps of a peculiar material, he called it, Deposited in her brain. What we now know is that those are lumps of abnormal protein, amyloid plaques and tangles, and because they're abnormal protein, the immune system sees them as an enemy, it sees them as an alien. So you can look at the uh, brain of a patient with Alzheimer's disease under the microscope, and you can see the microglia, the brain's immune cells, are attacking these proteins and doing collateral damage to the neurons uh, around them at the same time. So possibly anti inflammatory drugs. Uh, or other treatments in future might be useful as a way of mitigating the impact of, of neurodegenerative disease or slowing the rate at which people uh, become demented. So I think the therapeutic uh, options are very attractive. But the final, and I think you know, grandiest, grandest claim in the book is that all of this gets at what I called at the beginning a revolution. Uh, for 400 years... Western medicine has been dominated by this idea, the Cartesian dualist idea, that there's something very different about the mind and the body. The body is mechanistically understandable, the mind is, in Descartes' view, it was a a spiritually immaterial uh, substance. Um, We've separated people, we've separated services, we've separated professional training along those dualist lines for about 400 years. Uh, In the book, I call it medical apartheid. And I don't think it is to the advantage of patients generally Uh, that their treatment and understanding of the physical and mental health symptoms should be so uh, categorically divided. That is, uh, I would say, the most sort of ambitious, you might even say grandiose, implication of all of this, that we might begin to start moving into a different way of thinking about the relationship between the body and the mind. We might move on from the idea of Cartesian dualism that's been very important for Western medicine over the last 400 years, but it is 400 years old. Uh, Maybe we could rethink that a little bit now. So that's it. And that gets us back to where I started. That's why I say we could be on the cusp of revolution. It won't be televised, meaning it's not going to be over and done with in a week or two weeks. This is, I think, a sort of several-generational process And as I said at the start, I might be wrong. But if I'm not, uh, I think exciting times ahead. So thank you for your attention. Uh, I'd like to thank Short Books and and Helen Maxwell for the work they did on the book. It's terrific. And I'm happy to take a bit of Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, the f- if, if we get at the first question, if you could kindly keep the questions brief, and I'll try and keep the answers brief, too. Thank you very much for your very stimulating talk. You did at the beginning mention that the, you gave examples of people who'd suffered from inflammation earlier and then were suffering from depression later. Yeah. Within your um, portrayal of the way that e- evolution might have had some part in this... I wonder whether there was something left deficient in the blood after inflammation, rather than the inflammation itself, that would mean that the person was depressed years later after the inflammation had gone down. Yeah, I, that's possible. Um, I think, you know, you, if you, you, can, look in, you can look at shorter timescale um, changes, you know, inflammation over a short time linking to depression, as, as in the uh, vaccination experiment. But um, you're right. Uh, we don't know. For example, that, that childhood story I told you, the, the nine-year-old you know, being inflamed and that predicting increased risk of uh, depression uh, nine years later, we don't know what the mechanism is that carries that memory. It, it could be in the immune system, or as your question implies, it could be something else. Uh, Hello, sorry. I've
1: got, yeah. I've got the microphone. Yeah. Um, I just want to uh, explore the discussion about association. So are there examples of clinical trials of patients with depression which have been treated with anti-inflammatories which have failed?
0: Yes, that's a very good question. There haven't been, there haven't been many of those trials. Uh, there have been two or three that I can think of. In fact, uh, and they've all failed. Um, but we've got sort of cunning explanations for why they failed, so uh, we can carry on. Um, so uh, some, some of those trials have failed simply because the drugs that have been used don't actually get into the brain. So that's that's one thing. Um, the best trial um, that failed, uh, it turned out when the investigators went back and looked at it, that actually the, 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 the depressed patients who were more inflamed at the start of the trial did get better, but the, the patients that were not inflamed at the start of the trial actually got worse as a result of the treatment, and that kind of averaged out, so there was no net benefit of the treatment. And that's a very strong signal to us that when we're developing treatments, develop, designing trials, we should not be doing this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. We should be trying to think, uh, you know, using a biomarker, is this particular person likely to respond to the new treatment? And I think that will give us more positive results. Yep. Uh,
1: yep. Hi, uh, I'm glad you mentioned menopause, as a member. I think looking around, there's quite a few of us here. Um, you don't mention oestrogen in your book at all. And I, you mentioned menopause, but you didn't mention premenstrual syndrome or puberty. And have you thought about looking at the effect of oestrogen as an anti-inflammatory um, hormone? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just wondered what your opinions were yeah. on
0: that. Uh, well, so the sh- short answer is you're absolutely right. Of course, I didn't, you know, there were many aspects of oestrogen of, um, and... and uh, and and, and other sort of sexual developmental changes that I didn't talk about. Um, That was really just in the interest of keeping the the story short. I think there are important questions to investigate further. I think, you know, you you might have asked a similar question uh, about diet or the microbiome. And what I would say in general is that these could all be relevant factors. If you look at the scientific literature as it stands, there's some evidence for each of them but I think we, we, what I think is important is not to lose touch with the sophistication of immunology as it now is. We need to, we need to carry forward these ideas and do experiments and studies that try and understand exactly what is happening uh, as somebody goes through the menopause in terms of their immune system. Uh, you know How exactly is that working? How does the immune system respond to diet changes or to microbiome? Uh, changes. All of these factors need to be understood, but I think we we've got a. I think they're all plausible um, factors. They're worth investigating, but I, I, I think it's important that we, we try and kind of stay close to the, the immunology as we do that, because it has been a tremendously exciting scientific uh, growth area over recent years. Yep.
1: Hello. Hello. Oh, sorry. Um, first of all, thank you. That makes. So much sense. Um, everything you said makes sense. Um, it seems to have made sense for many years. I mean, I was here a few years ago listening to Tim Spector talking about yeah. the, the gut and the microbiome. What, what can we do, what can politicians do to make the, the research a bit, I don't know, faster? Is that yeah. the right thing? Yeah. Is this too big a question to answer now?
0: No. Did you say politicians?
1: us no, not necessarily politicians, politicians. It, it could be us it could be doctors yeah. you know I've, I've had depression for 16 years right. i've right. had right. different you know well you tablets.
0: know so, yeah, so i think it's a very good question so i mean obviously the, i would say this and i will say it you know if we put more money into research to develop new drugs in time that or or other new treatment approaches based on immunology in time that might deliver new treatments I, I also think there's probably more we could do right now You know, I mean, if you think about how the NHS is organised... I I work in Cambridge and Peterborough Foundation Trust, as I said. That's a mental health trust. Uh, But my office is in Attenbrook's, which is a physical health trust. If I've got a mental health symptom uh, arising because of a physical disorder like arthritis, I'm going to be seen by two different doctors who are never going to join it up. And I don't see, really, why we couldn't lobby for some reconfiguration of services. So that you've got physical and mental health services co-provided, you know, coherently provided to patients in the same clinic at the same time in a more integrated way. That doesn't, that's not rocket science. That doesn't need billions of dollars going into new drug development. I just want well, to take up your comment about diet. I mean, it seems to be v- various possibilities, being the polyphenols, flavonoids, um, vitamin A, C, E, selenium, that could influence this. And there is a literature, epidemiological literature, that f- finds a relationship between eating fruit and vegetables and lower instances of depression. Yeah. Well, thank you. F- uh, excuse me. Thank you for that comment. I mean, I think um, I'm not a, an expert in... Um, Dietary matters. It's amazing, actually, how little we were taught about nutrition and diet uh, in the whole course of my medical training. And I think still, physicians tend not to know very much about diet and tend to underestimate the extent to which it could be contributory. And I think it's an, you know it's a, an area that's well worth exploring. And all, uh, all the only caveat I put on that is what I said to the lady or in response to the question about the menopause: is you know yes, diet could play a role, and 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 that could be very fascinating. it could open up all sorts of treatment options that are going to be very acceptable to a wide number of patients with very low side effects so you know good way to be thinking about things but let's just keep you know clear about the immunology is is what I would say the, the, the fundamental science I do get a bit worried about some of the stuff that you see out there on the internet, for example, claiming that this or that diet can change inflammatory status and you know, not always is the evidence really there to support that. So I think it's worth looking at, but I think we've just got to stay scientifically keen as we do that. Thank you.
1: Um, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, oh. any breakthroughs linked with what you've been talking about? Um, also, should we be worried about microplastics and the blood-brain barrier? And Gosh. is that a Gil Scott Heron quote? <laughs> the revolution will not be televised. And yeah. um, thank you.
0: Yeah, OK, thank you very much. So, the easy one first, yes, that's a Gil Scott Heron quote. Um, <laughs> microplastics, I, know, I, don't, I have no idea. I just don't know. So, I won't say anything about that. Um, uh, and the first bit of it, um, what was the first part of your question? I forgot. Oh, oh sorry. Fat- so, I'm sorry, yes, thank you. Yeah, fibromyalgia and, and chronic fatigue. Yeah, I mean, so fibromyalgia, that is a kind of what I would call a Moliere diagnosis, okay? What that means is you go to the doctor and you say, I've got aches in my joints, aches in my muscles, and he says, or she says, oh, well, that sounds like a case of fibromyalgia. All he's done is translate into Greek what you told him. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER We don't have a test for di- fibromyalgia, it's what they call a diagnosis by exclusion. Um, and that, what that means, and chronic fatigue syndrome likewise. Uh, and I think that's unfortunate, I think it leaves a lot of people feeling that their symptoms somehow don't really count or aren't real. Um, and I think it would be interesting to you know, investigate whether actually as we begin to think more about this new science of immunology and how it relates to the brain, maybe there are uh, immunological explanations. I mean, chronic fatigue syndrome originally w- was, you know, described uh, in response to an infection, or as often, as often, as uh, people often experience the onset of chronic fatigue following infection. So, you know, infection's going to stimulate the, no- uh, the immune system, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to think that everything I've said about depression could also be relevant to those disorders too. But again, we need to do more, uh, you know, level-headed, sceptical research just to make sure we're staying grounded about all of this. Yep.
1: Um, I've gone through the application to try and get diagnosed with depression, and I've lived with it for six years. And I remember right at the start, my doctor said, yes, well, you've got high levels of inflammation, but that doesn't really mean anything. We don't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. And it seems that you're saying that there's a lot of research saying that it's very connected. So mm-hmm. where, why aren't GPs and general health practitioners not... Why is there a distance there? Why aren't people... Talking about it, aware about it, and when and how do you think that'll happen?
0: Um, So, was your doctor a GP or a psychiatrist or a sort of hospital physician? GP. I mean, you know, I don't don't know why he or she didn't make the connection, but you know, I do know that when you go through medical school, when you train as you know as a as a doctor of any description, you are you end up pretty much indoctrinated by the idea that you know the body and the mind are Pulls apart. That's the kind of Cartesian dualism, it's the medical apartheid I was talking about. When I say indoctrinated, I mean, you might not even know, that that's the assumption you're making. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very ingrained in Western medical thinking. Um, it, it should change, because the science is telling us it should change. How quickly it will change, I don't know, I would come back to Gil Scott Heron, you know, it might take some time. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a generational thing. I think we seem to need actually seem to need, need to see changes in training of doctors uh, so that people emerge into practice equipped to deal with both physical and mental and maybe we could reconfigure services so that that you know, can be delivered as one coherent package to patients a bit more often than it is.
1: Hello. Um, In a way, you've covered it lightly, and I haven't read the book, so forgive me if if, um, this is irrelevant. But you're talking very much one way, i.e. that you start with inflammation, which then affects the brain. Mm -hmm. But you also refer to stressful situations, bereavement and things. So it has to come the other way as well. So have you measured somebody being treated for, for that, for traumatic events, and then watching their inflammation levels change accordingly? So you have both measurements.
0: Uh, I see. So you, somebody who's experienced a stressful event has, let's say, psychological counselling, uh, and as a result of that, the inflammation, level inflammation back. levels yeah.
1: reduce. And yeah. if if they don't, if you're just treating it chemically, yeah. then and it's a mental trauma, then it's likely,
0: presumably, that the inflammation will come back because the mental trauma hasn't been treated. Yes. Um, well, I think those, are, you know, those, are, those questions touch on what I think is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole story, which is, you know, how does stress, and I think particularly childhood stress, how does that change the immune system, maybe resetting the immune system so that we become, you know, more readily inflamed by social stresses in the future? How can you use psychological treatments for stress management? Could you monitor the effects of those treatments or demonstrate that they'd worked, you know, mechanistically by showing decreases in inflammation? Those are very good questions, and I'm afraid to say, again, that the answer is it's all still to do. You know, there's, uh, there's evidence for sure that stress drives inflammation. There's a bit of evidence that psychological treatments can reduce inflammation, but the kind of uh, experiment that you're talking about, the kind of understanding that you're after isn't yet out there. But there's no reason with more research why we couldn't become clearer about that. OK, thanks very much. I have a feeling we're out of time, actually. Uh, so Thank you.